Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Do you enjoy waiting? Talked about that a few, a few weeks ago uh, with the children. But waiting's difficult, isn't it? I wonder if there are many of us here waiting this morning, waiting for a job, waiting for somebody to take notice of our applications and, um, and give you the job that you like, or waiting for a, a break, waiting for some rest from whatever life just seems to unrelentingly give you at the moment, waiting for that person to notice what you really want them to notice, for that person that you love to notice you, to notice how difficult life is for you and to help you out. Waiting for the government to sort out your benefits, to sort out whatever it is that you need them to fix. Waiting for better news from the doctors that just doesn't seem to come. And waiting for there to be something else on the news other than Brexit. Looking forward to that day, aren't you? When the government finally get themselves sorted out um, and do something about it and we can think about and hear about something else in the news. Waiting is difficult, isn't it? Waiting is hard, but it's also a rather dangerous thing. And waiting can breed cynicism. Watching the news at the moment can breed cynicism. And waiting can breed bitterness. Waiting can, can breed despair. So how do we handle that? How do you handle it when you've been waiting and waiting and waiting? Not just for even a few weeks or months, but perhaps even years for better news, for relief, for peace for things to get better? How do you handle waiting without falling into those traps of cynicism, of bitterness, or of despair? How can we be people, God's people, who are characterized by irrepressible joy, even in the most hopeless of situations? Well, there's two things I think that can help us with that today, two things from this story. Um, The first is this, we need to see a king who has superb reflexes. That's the first thing that we need to see. And the second is this, that that there's an unstoppable mustard seed kingdom. And something about that kingdom, we need to see all the kind of things that try and crush it. So a mustard seed kingdom and a king with superb reflexes. Let's go and have a look at the story and think where David is at the moment. So in the course of time, it says in chapter 2 of Samuel, David inquired of the Lord. But well, in the course of time, what kind of time is that? If you remember from the, from the last chapter, maybe you haven't been around, so just fill you in. David has been anointed king kind of king-in-waiting. There was another king, a man called Saul, who started off really well and then really went very bad for him. He stopped listening to the Lord. He stopped being obedient. He stopped really being God's king and took things into his own hands and ended up chasing this David, this new king that God had chosen all around the desert, in caves and out, all the way even to foreign countries. He chased him and chased him for probably the best part of a decade. So it's not just we who are used to waiting, but David is used to waiting. And probably the people of Israel as well are used to waiting, to flicking on their news, if they, you know, whatever the kind of thing that they did in those days, and seeing headline after headline about Saul, this mad, paranoid king. Almost got him this time, just just about got him, almost there. I'm sure we'll get him tomorrow. Next week, maybe next month will be the day when we finally get David. All they see when they turn on the news is paranoid King Saul not being able to get the job done, not being able to let them live in peace and do what they need to do as people, to live in peace. 
to be able to marry and give in marriage, to have rest, to be able to bring up their kids without worries about Philistines coming over because Saul is over-distracted with David. You see, they're used to waiting, and David is used to waiting, not just um, people like us. They've been waiting for the best part of a decade, for peace to come, for God's chosen king to walk into the throne. And now is the time. Now is the moment. In the course of time, David takes the throne. Actually, though, no, he doesn't. Look at what David does. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. See, what does David do in his waiting? This isn't the first time he's done it, by the way. Um, David, when times of waiting come, and even when times of waiting seem to be over, when it seems like everything's finally fallen into, into place, all of the, the, um, uh, the barriers are swept away, everything difficult seems to have finished, finally the day has come, it's about time for him to just walk into Israel and take the vacant throne. Almost all of Saul's sons are dead, at least all the ones who are capable of being king. And so now is his time. Surely it would be okay for him just to take the bull by the horns and get on with the job of being king. But he doesn't. He has a reflex in a different direction. Do you see what it is? His reflex is to pray. When things are very, very difficult, when he's waiting, when it's, when it's dark, he prays. And when the light begins to dawn and everything seems to fall into place, he prays, he stops, kneels down, and prays to God. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? That means, shall I go up to Israel? Shall I ascend to God's country close to him? Shall I go up, ascend to the throne? Shall I go up to make a place, my capital? You see, he's not just asking if he can go home, because he's far away from home at the moment. He's asking if he can go and be king. And God says, yes, now's the time. The waiting's over. It's time to be king. The moment everybody's been waiting for. Although it's not quite everybody, because he is king, but not king of everywhere. Did you see David went up? with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each of his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. King over one of the tribes. But how many tribes are there in Israel? There's 12. So the moment's here, but it's, it's not quite here. It seems like everything is going to be put back together, like... The world is going to be put to rights. David's finally going to be king. God's chosen king. And God's kingdom is going to dawn. It's going to be all all right. Except that it's not quite done yet. It's not quite finished. So David, he's a king with really good reflexes. That's the first thing that we need to see. The first thing for us to learn today is to be people after David's heart. People who, even when things are going wonderfully well, our reflex is to kneel down and bring them to the Lord and pray and ask him for help and for guidance. And especially, I think we know this, it's easier, isn't it? When things are dark and difficult, we've done it already this morning, Graham led us, in difficult times to kneel down and to pray and ask, Lord, will you help us? So David has great reflexes. Let's learn that and follow him this morning. And the second thing we need to see is a mustard seed kingdom. A mustard seed kingdom and all the things that try and crush it into the dust. You see, that's what Judah is. David is, it says he's the king, but really he's a tribal leader. There's 12 other tribes of people, plenty of others, all Israel, it said in the next bit, if you were um, following along. All Israel and all sorts of difficult things that try to come and crush that mustard seed. 
Just a little side note, by the way, if you're interested in thinking a little bit more deeply about the stories of Scripture and how they're all put together, um, just think about the the shape of this story. So just a little note for um, for you. David, he's been in exile, if you like, in in Philistia. He's been hanging out with the Philistines in a town called Ziklag, far away from Saul. So he's, if you like, under another king, almost in Egypt, in that kind of a situation, far away from his homeland, not where he should be, with his whole family that is growing and growing. You see, he's got two wives, lots of sons, lots of other people too. So his family's growing. And then somebody dies. An evil tyrant, oppressor king dies. But not just the king. His eldest son, his firstborn son, dies. And it's that blood that's shed that means it's possible for David to cross the river, to come over through the sea from that faraway land and come back home. Does that remind you of a story we've done recently? It's the story of the Exodus. It's a story that keeps coming up over and over and over again through Scripture. It's the story of God keeping his promises. You see, this is a story that isn't just about a good example, David, that we should follow. You know, David prayed, so we should pray. That's true and wonderful, and we really should. But this is a story that runs much deeper. It's a story which isn't just about David becoming king, not just about David as an example for us. It's a story about God keeping his promises, a God who, even with a world that has turned away from him, that wants nothing to do with him, is committed to bringing people out of that rebellious kingdom, out of that darkness, out of turning away from him, turning them back to himself and and demonstrating how much he loves us, bringing together a kingdom of people who would enjoy him and know him and be obedient to him, who would walk as we were made to walk and walk with him and be his people. You see, God has made those promises to Eve all the way back in the beginning, that he would crush evil and raise up somebody who would rule in its place, that he's made those promises to Abraham, that he would have a people who would bless the world, that the world would be a better place because of the work God is going to do through the people he's going to rescue. He's made those promises time and time again to Moses, to the people of Israel, to all these legends from the stories, people who lived around Hebron. That's where Abraham's buried, by the way. There's all sorts of little threads and things that we could pull, but I just wanted you to see that. This is the story, a re-capitulation, a re-repeating of the story of the Exodus, of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, being rescued from a tough spot and brought back home. So what's going on? What home are they coming to? Well, to Hebron, the home of the patriarchs, to the place where God is ascending into his presence, to be his faithful chosen king. They're coming to a mustard seed kingdom. It's pretty small. It doesn't look much right now. Their family, I mean, it's growing, but it's still quite small. But it's growing. It's only the tribe of Judah, but it's growing. It's going to take a while. There's going to be a lot more waiting. In fact, seven more years. But if you've got a Bible, turn with me a couple pages over. And we'll come to the bookend of the stories, which is in chapter 5. The kingdom is growing. All the tribes of Israel, so chapter 5, verse 1. Now all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So then the waiting really is over, sort of. There's a whole lot of the rest of the story to come, but do you see, 
The mustard seed begins here in chapter 2. Finally, after all the waiting's over, that seed begins to sprout. The seed that was planted when God anointed David. Do you remember when? It's halfway back through 1 Samuel. It's almost 18 months ago. Thomas, I think, was only born around the stage that we first met David. Now it's 18 months. Thomas turned 18 months two days ago. And that's how long we've been waiting to hear David, who was anointed all the way back then, 10 years ago or so in this story, 18 months ago for us. Now we've been waiting for him to, um, to come to the throne. And so here he is. That seed's been planted. It's begun to sprout, but it doesn't grow to its full height until chapter 5. But then even then, it's only the beginning. Did you see what's happening? It's a mustard seed kingdom. It's something which starts small, but which grows. And it grows irrepressibly, unstoppably, like Jesus says of his own kingdom. He says that his kingdom is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground. And though it's the smallest of all the seeds, or it looks like it anyway, it grows and becomes a huge tree. And all the birds of the air come and rest in the shade of its branches. That's what David's kingdom is going to be. That's what Jesus' kingdom is like. That's what the church is like. That's what we are. Perhaps you look around and you see all sorts of weak and struggling people. All sorts of frail people going through difficult times. Finite people. People like me and you who have some gifts and some abilities and some money and some stuff that we can do, but really we're very small in the grand scheme of things. And you look out at the world and you see all the confusion and all the different options that there are and um, all the struggle and hardness and darkness that there is, and it seems really difficult. It seems like the church can do nothing about it. It seems like maybe this mustard seed is just stuck in the ground and it's not giving much growth at all. Maybe soon a lawnmower is going to come over and chop down that little, that, that little sapling and, and it'll be finished forever. The church will be consigned to the dustbin of history. But if you're a Welsh nationalist, or maybe just Welsh and speak a bit of Welsh, you'll know there's a song. I can't remember who sang it, but the, the chorus has these words. Dyni yma o hyd, right? El gwetha pawb popeth. Dyni yma o hyd. What does that mean? In English it means, in spite of everyone and everything, we're still here. It's a song that you sing at rugby grounds. It's a song that you sing at kind of um, Welsh festivals because we're still here despite Maggie Thatcher and her crew, whatever your politics, I'm sorry about that. Despite whatever, all the stuff we've been through, we're still here as a Welsh nation. We are still here. Now, uh, we as the church of all people can sing that, can't we? I don't know how far back you would count the Welsh nation as going, but the church goes back further. We are thousands and thousands and thousands of year, years old. We're still here despite everything and everyone. Well, in between those two chapters, we see all sorts of hammers trying to pound this mustard seed into the dust. Let's go through a couple of them and just see all the kinds of things. It's not an easy road for this mustard seed kingdom. And there are plenty of things, the kind of things that we encounter day by day as well, except maybe not quite in the same degree, thankfully. But if you read the rest of these, those chapters in between, we don't have time to read them all now. Um, I'd recommend you go home and read them this afternoon. It's a really good story. Um, pretty tragic, hard stuff. Maybe get a book as well. Let me plug this. This is Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on 2 Samuel. It's really, really, really good. Um, he has lots of good illustrations, especially if you're into history and American Civil War history. He's got all sorts of interesting stuff in there. So take this home through the whole of the series. Take the book home, make it your home for the next couple of months and get into these stories that we can't get into detail enough of um, on Sunday mornings. So a couple of hammers that try and crush this mustard seed. The first one is a rival kingdom. Shale read about that. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, this is verse 8 of chapter 2, the commander of Saul's army. This is an old man who knows what he's doing. He knows who David is. 
was probably there when David beat Goliath, has heard that David has been anointed king. He knows exactly what he's doing. Well, what does he do? He takes Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead, Asherah, Jezreel, and also Ephraim, Benjamin, and all the rest of Israel. Do you see what he's doing? He's setting up a rival kingdom. That's the first hammer that comes along and tries to crush God's chosen kingdom, God's mustard seed. It's a rival king that comes and tries to take its place. There's all sorts of these that happen through David's story. But Ishbosheth, I mean, he's nothing much. He's a, a bit of a weed in the end. But Abner, he is really something to be reckoned with. He is a, a force of nature. He's somebody who, well, all the rest of Israel are basically following him. A major problem for little David with his one tribe and his few people. He hasn't got much compared to the whole of the rest of Israel. He looks tiny. Israel looks huge. David looks small. Abner looks big. But what happens in the end? Well, you read the story on. Abner gets defeated in battle by David's people. Abner eventually turns over, comes back to David and says, right, I'm sorry I made a mistake. We'll get to that in a second. But rival kingdoms, things come in and compete for, Je- for our hearts with Jesus, don't they? Things like comfort. I wonder if that's one that we struggle with most in our culture, in our church. We like nice things. We like nice cars. We like nice stuff. We like to be comfortable. We like to come home of an evening and, and sit and just rest and watch TV together and enjoy comforts. It's not a bad thing at all. God has given us those comforts as a blessing. He's made a world full of wonderful things to enjoy. But those things, that comfort, can so often sneak in and be a rival king, be a thing that wins our allegiance so that we actually love comfort more than we love serving Jesus, that we love spending time watching other stuff more than we enjoy spending time walking with him and praying and opening scripture and talking about him with other, other Christians. You see, there's all sorts of things like that could, that could compete with your heart for, for your allegiance. Compete with your allegiance um, with Jesus. I wonder what it is for you. Maybe it's your status in the community. You just love your reputation. Maybe it's the money and the wealth and the comfort and that kind of stuff that you have. Maybe it's your own body and health. That's the kind of thing when it's compromised When you don't get to the gym, when you get that diagnosis, it seems like everything comes crashing down and all hope is gone. Well, that's a good sign. The thing that keeps you awake at night, that worrying about, if you lost it, it would be over for you. That's the kind of thing which is a rival kingdom that we often set up. You see, that's in opposition to Jesus that wins our heart over. There's other things as well that try and crush that mustard seed that should be the end of of our faithfulness to Jesus. Tragedy is one of those. You just read on this story, and Joab, that's David's general, and Abner get together, and they have a bit of a stupid idea. They say, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand in hand in front of us. Let's have a bit of a sport, a bit of a game, a bit of a gladiator show. All right, let them do it, Joab says. This is in verse 14 of chapter 2. So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called the Field of Daggers. Stupid, pointless tragedy. Senseless waste of young men's lives. And nobody wins. Nothing happens. They just continue this running battle through the rest of the chapter until even more tragedy happens. A young man called Asahel, who's Joab's brother, Joab, David's general, his younger brother, Asahel, runs after Abner, chases him down. And Abner turns around after warning him and warning him and saying, I'm the better fighter. I'm going to kill you. Stop chasing me. 
But Asahel, verse 23, refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. I told you it was unpleasant. And he fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to that place where Asahel had fallen and died. And they mourned for him. And Joab, that starts in Joab, a real deep root of bitterness, of unforgiveness. And you read on through, and chapter 3, verse 24 Abner has turned and come back to David. He's trying to unite everything around. It's really good news. David welcomes him, makes peace with him. Joab comes off from a journey and hears it and says, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you're doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David didn't know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway as though to speak with him privately and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Do you see how much senseless, pointless tragedy there is? These 12 and 12 die pointlessly and then three, four hundred others just running battles between brothers, between people of the same nation. It doesn't get them anywhere. It says, beginning of chapter 3, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. So there's these things that come and try and crush the mustard seed. Rival kingdoms. Senseless tragedy that should drive people apart. And then even sin. We often think of David as a bit of a hero and a legend, but um, David is not a perfect man. David is a man like each one of us who have a streak of good and evil that runs through um, each one of our hearts. You can see that in this passage through two things, what David does and what he doesn't do. One thing he does is he takes a lot of wives. Now, it doesn't tell us that that was a wrong thing to do in the the story, but it's just pretty obvious that it was a really stupid thing to do. In chapter 2, he's got two wives. By chapter 3, he's got at least six. Um, and then he takes another one who was his old first wife and takes her away from her husband. It's a legal thing to do, but it's a really horrible thing to do. Her husband follows, follows his wife um, for miles and miles, weeping and weeping and weeping as he goes. And it, she was David. Saul took her away from him to begin with, but it's just a mess of a situation. But God's kingdom still is built, even through David's sinfulness taking all of these wives. By the way, just a little thing. If you're going through Old Testament stories, it doesn't always tell you what's right and wrong. You're usually supposed to be just left to see what the, situ- what the consequences of a story are, what the consequences of an action are, and then you just work it out for yourself that that was a really stupid thing to do. So David has two wives, and then three, and then six, and then loads. And all of these sons that are mentioned in the beginning of chapter three end up murdering each other or trying to murder David or doing really, really horrible things that I didn't want to mention this morning. David's sin almost gets in the way. David's stupidity, not just what he does, but in what he doesn't do. He doesn't control Joab. Joab gets murderous and an unforgiveness in his heart and goes and bumps off Abner, the one who's trying to make peace with them and bring Israel together, almost derails the whole thing. So do you see it's a huge piling up of hammers trying to smash the mustard seed, trying to bring down God's kingdom. Rival things that try and win the hearts of the people. Stupid tragedy that just seems to say, is there even a God who rules over this when it's so dark and difficult? Sin, our own sin and our leaders' sins. Cynical politics, trying to veil it in theological terms. There's all sorts of stuff you'll find 
in these chapters if you go and read. But in chapter 5, all the elders of Israel came to King David at Hebron, and and the king made a covenant with them. And they anointed David king over Israel. After everything that's happened, after all those things trying to crush the mustard seed, the kingdom still stands. God is still building his church. His chosen king is on the throne. Against all the odds, it's ridiculous. He shouldn't really have a chance against Saul running around in the wilderness for a decade. He shouldn't have a chance against Ishbosheth and all the other tribes. He shouldn't have a chance against the darkness of tragedy. He shouldn't have a chance against his own sin. Why is he king? But God raises him up. God fulfills his plans and brings good to the people of Israel. They're united, and eventually peace comes, and they can settle down. They can do what humans are made to do and worship God and know him. They can do what humans are made to do and give in marriage and marry and raise families and welcome people and outsiders and bless the community as each one of us grows up to be big trees and people come and shade in our branches. You see, God's kingdom is something which is completely unstoppable. God's kingdom is something that your sin will not stop. God's kingdom is something that, that the rival kingdoms of the world won't stop. God's kingdom is something that the chaos of our politics won't stop. God's kingdom is something that suffering will not stop. Do you see? Do you see who David is? Do you see the kind of sh- the shape of the shadow that David casts in that amazing reflex that he has in the prayer? And also in the kind of kingdom that he's building that's just unstoppable. Do you see, when the light shines on David, the shadow that he casts is Jesus-shaped. Do you remember when Jesus was waiting and waiting and waiting? Each morning, he would go to a quiet place and kneel down and pray. When everything seemed to have fallen into place, his, his moment was upon us. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he do? He doesn't just charge off to the cross. He kneels down and he says, your will be done. What shall I do? Your will be done. Jesus plants his mustard seed kingdom, his own body, and raises it up. See, this is a picture of his kingdom, of of us waiting for Jesus, of him coming to earth and having a kingdom, having some disciples, a small number, but then after the resurrection, growing up into a huge number that can't be counted to spread soon to every tribe and tongue and nation all around the world. You see, it's not just David's kingdom that grows slowly, but unstoppably. It's Jesus' kingdom, and it keeps on growing. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will come back and every tribe, not just of Israel, but from around the world, will come to him, will bow the knee and say, you are our king, you are my king. So a couple of questions to finish this morning. Which kingdom are you a part of? I think I've asked that question umpteen times. It's one of the big questions of, of these stories is who do you belong to? Do you belong to Abner and Ishbosheth and all of those other kingdoms that stand against Jesus, that look so powerful and look so much more plausible and so much better and so much more rewarding to follow? Do you stand with the kingdom of comfort and of status and of the world as it is at the moment? Or do you stand with Jesus and his weakness, his church that looks a bit pathetic? Who do you stand with? Do you stand with the world as it is at the moment? Or are you banking your life on the mustard seed kingdom and on the mustard seed king who prays, not just for himself, but who prays for you? Which kingdom are you a part of? If you're a little worried about trusting him, we'll go back to chapter 2 and just see what David does with his enemies. These men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, they really loved Saul. He rescued them. It's one of the first things he did as king. He rescued them. So David should come, really, by rights and, and cut them down or exile them or do something, but he doesn't. He comes and he says, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul. 
May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. And to you, and I too will show you the same favor because you've done this. If you're into Hebrew, the word he uses three times there is hesed, faithful love that God shows to us. David says, thank you for showing that to Saul. I'm praying that the Lord would show that to you, and I'm going to show that to you. Do you want to come and be part of my kingdom? Even though you've run away for ages, even though you really don't trust me much, even though you love Saul more than you love me, that's each one of us, isn't it, who love the things that we love more than we love Jesus. That's each one of us this morning. Well, Jesus' arms are open wide to us this morning, and he speaks hesed over us. He speaks steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what that word means. A love that never ends, that can never be defeated. He speaks that over you and prays it for you and invites us with open arms this morning. Whatever the state of our hearts, however far we've been running away from him, he opens his arms and says, come and be a part of my kingdom. If you are a part of it already, well, what do we do? Well, let's follow this king. Let's have the same reflexes he has. So when it's hard, we kneel down and pray. When it's easy and it seems obvious what we should do, we pause in humility and we kneel down and pray. And we invite other people to come and be a part of this kingdom. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.